Good morning. And I want to say hi to our new friends in Carmel Glestia Church in California. Was there last weekend, had a really great turnout of over 800 people there on Sabbath morning. Then we presented the God-shaped brain, designer and dictator, seven levels of moral decision-making, and it was really extremely well-received, and uh, just hope those uh, people continue to kind of grow and share in, in this perspective. So we're, we're glad to have you on board as our, as our friends. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the um, truths that you've given us in your word. We thank you for the love that you've brought us through Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit will join us today, and we draw close to you in our insight, our understanding, and our heart affections for each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in the quarterly rebellion and redemption, and the title this week is The Controversy Continues. The Controversy Continues. And the uh, first paragraph says... When we compare the lives of David, Elijah, Hezekiah, Esther, and Nehemiah, similar themes surface. God is able to use insignificant people to turn back the tide of evil. Through some of these accounts, we see that despite tremendous obstacles, we don't need to buckle under overwhelming evil. Instead, we can stand firm, but only in the power of God, who is faithful to his covenant promises, promises fulfilled for us in Jesus, when God's people... endure in his might, they will see that the forces of evil are not powerful enough to ultimately prevail. What did you think when you read this? There's nothing false about this. This is all true. But did it tell you substantively anything? Our God's more powerful than your God. Yeah. I mean, what was the message you're getting? Power, might. And so forth. Well, I wanted to break this out. Let's break it out a little bit. First off, what does it mean to buckle? See, if we have, if we do the things in here, we're not going to buckle. Give in. So, would it mean things like this? To disobey an explicit instruction found in Scripture. Oh, I don't know, like David using the showbread to feed his men. Did he buckle? Does it mean saying no to God? Would that be buckling, saying no to God? You know, the parable of the two sons that Jesus said, and the first son said, no, I'm not going to go out and work in your field. But then he did, but he told him no. Was he buckling? Or to lie, Rahab. When she lied to hide the spies, at, during that line, was she buckling? Does it mean to question God? So Moses... When, when he, he questioned God about destroying Israel, or, or Abraham, when he questioned God about destroying his Sodom, were they buckling? You know, I, I ask these questions because I want us to think, what does actual buckling look like? What, what actually is it? I think it means to betray one's loyalty to God and give in to fear and selfishness. To make selfish choices at the expense of God and others. So Moses, when he struck the rock, buckled. Elijah, when he ran away, buckled. David with Bathsheba, and then later, even worse, with Uriah, buckled. Abraham lying about his wife, buckled. Peter denying Christ, buckled. What was the cause of the buckling? Why would people buckle? Why would these people that, that were champions, what, what was the underlying reason for their buckling? Fear. Fear. There it is. It's this infection. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. How many of you chose to be born with fear and insecurity? 
We are born this way, born in sin. This is an infection from our birth. We don't need to feel bad for having it. We need to recognize and own that it's there and recognize that if we give in to it, it's hurtful to us. <clears throat> so what does it that actually undermines our trust in God? Is it... Do you think those who, who war the most effectively against God are the people who deny he exists? Or the people who war most effectively against God are people who proclaim he exists? But deny the power thereof. Yes. You know, the people that are the most effective in obstructing God's cause are typically not those who deny God exists. They're the ones who believe in God, but they believe in such a perverted and distorted view of God that the God that they promote corrupts themselves and then corrupts in the community they influence the view of God. talks about the power of God that enables us to stand firm. What is the power of God that enables us to stand firm? See, when I read this passage, it really seemed to speak to our fear and insecurity through the, through the human survival of the fittest drive that the Israelites were seeking 2,000 years ago when Christ came. And what were they seeking 2,000 years ago in a Messiah? Somebody who was powerful, who could destroy the Romans, who could resurrect their dead armies, who could feed their armies with just a few fishes and loaves. Okay, they were looking for someone with power, physical might and power. That's what they were looking for. And this, this, it seems to appeal to our need. We want someone strong, someone powerful. It makes us feel safe. Romans 1.16, though, speaks of a different type of power. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because in, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. What, what is that? What is the power of the gospel? How do you avail yourself of that power? Is the power of the gospel, which is often taught, that God is more, God is the creator, and therefore he's stronger, and he's mightier, and he's coming back with a rod of iron, and one day he'll do just what the Jews wanted 2,000 years ago. It just wasn't the right time. All things in time and place. And when he comes this time, he'll do what the Jews wanted. He'll kill all his enemies, and he's going to rule them with a rod, a rod of iron. And, and the, so we can, have, we can have peace and security, and knowing we've got a powerful God coming to kill the people who do us wrong. Is, is that the power of the gospel? Do you know that's a very common view of Christianity? It's very commonly taught. This is uh, from a book called Desire of Ages, 759. Think of this in light of the question of power. What do you understand the power of the gospel, the power of God's kingdom to be? Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. When you think of the power, when I read this first, first paragraph in the lesson, and you're thinking of the power of God that lets us not buckle and stand firm in the face of, are you thinking of the power of truth and love or are you thinking of something else? How are truth and love prevailing powers? Or let me put it this way. What is it that truth prevails over? And where would truth have the prevailing impact? Where is the place that truth impacts you? 
Hearts. hearts and minds, okay? So then you go take this hope, your, your, your computers are going, you go, whoa, that reminds me of 2 Corinthians 10 through 5. We're in a war, they don't wage war like the world does. The weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds, and we demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Oh, what's that power? It's the power of truth, which destroys lies and wins his trust. And then. The power of what does love prevail over? Selfishness. All of those. Actually, perfect love casts out all fear, and fear drives us to look out for who? Self. So it's all connect. Fear and selfishness are, are, are always held together. The more fearful you get, the more self-referenced you get. The more selfish you act, actually, the more fear you, you engender in yourself. When you act selfishly, you don't rid yourself of fear. People who are hoarders, and the more they hoard, then the more they fear they're going to lose. And why are they hoarding? Because they're afraid they won't have. The more you give, the less fear that you have. Satan's power lies, and thus, as the Bible says, Hebrews 2, that by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Devil's power of death. What's the power of death? Many people still think in these terms of physical coercive power. No, life eternal, John 17, 3, life eternal, biblical math. We're going to do Bible math now. (laughs) Biblical math, life eternal is what? (laughs) To know God or knowing God. Well, if eternal life equals knowing God, then what does eternal death equal? (laughs) Not knowing God. So Satan's power then is? The lies that he tells about God that we believe that prevent us from knowing him. That's his power. Christ's death destroyed that power. How does Christ's death destroy that power? Because if you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And, de- and Christ had all power, physical power, as the creator, creator power at his disposal. He could have accessed it had he wanted. But what do we learn? There's an old saying in, in human culture Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see that. Don't we see it in human history? But Christ had all power at his disposal. John 13, he was given all authority, all power. But what did he do with the power? What do we learn at the cross? Even when he's being coerced and tortured, he doesn't use power self-centeredly to save himself. Thus, he destroys the lies of Satan. He destroys those lies. And we see, well, God's not like that. God is exactly the opposite of what Satan says he is. Satan's power is destroyed. How is love power? Remember this example we've given many times, but it kind of brings it home. You're crossing the street, and as you step out in the street, a truck is about to hit you. What emotion do you experience? Fear. You're out with your firstborn child, who's maybe three years of age, and you get distracted. And before you know it, your toddler's toddled out in the street. A truck is about to hit your toddler, and there's just enough time. If you act now, you can shove your child out of the way, but if you do, you get hit. What do you do? You shove your child out of the way. And when you see your child hit the grass on the other side, and you know your child is safe, what emotion do you experience now? Joy. Joy. Really? Wait a second. You're getting hit by a truck. Notice, in both circumstances, you're getting hit by a truck. In the first, there's only fear. In the second, your love has cast out your fear. Love is the only power that actually can free us from this self-reference. We have to come to love God and others more than self. Then we have something beyond ourselves that's worthy of, of surrendering ourselves for and to. Yes? 
just in follow up, you know, it's interesting if God does act the way most Christians describe him, he does look corrupt. You know, it does distort his flawless character. So if he does in the end use his power to take away their lives when they don't want to give it, Satan somehow wins and or if people believe that it, it twists God's character. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. I mean, think about it in any relationship from your own experiences. If you're in a relationship and somebody tells you they love you, all they want is your love. But if you don't love them back, they will will kill you. What happens to love? It just cannot work there. It destroys love. This is one of those design laws, and you can test it. It's quite testable. We won't go through the whole cascade. It's in the notes of the lies, believe, break the circle, love, and trust, because there's other things we want to get to. What about some of the lies, though, that are operational today in Christianity that actually obstruct us from knowing God, obstruct us from actually reaching people? This is one I see a lot. How when we close our, our hearts to love because we want to, we want to do what's right. We want to do it because we're afraid. We're afraid that, that we'll corrupt the church. We're afraid we're, we're, we're going to move from, from this love for the person to the fear of, of corrupting the institution, fear of, of bringing sin into the church. And we're now fear-based to protect the church. What do we do? How about this? When people give their heart to Jesus Christ, we won't baptize them until they first give up their Sabbath job give up their smoking, give up their alcohol, reform their lives, and once they, through a power of will and effort on their own, have made themselves healthy and right, then we'll let them be baptized into Jesus Christ. Because why? We're afraid if we were baptized a smoker, well, we would bring sin into the church. We can't do that. I've heard from some friends, and it seems to make sense scripturally, that when people want to fall in love with Jesus, you baptize them. And when they were willing to May work in the kids' division, may clean out clogged commodes, will do the hard jobs of going visiting grumpy people in the hospital. You know, then may they need to be a member that can deal with the inner frustrations and inner challenges of a church family. And how do we do evangelism? It, there's lots of ways to do it, but we can argue and get ugly how we do evangelism. So when they're willing to work with the nitty-gritty and, and disagree with the apostles and work <clears> that <throat> conflict through, then may they're ready to be a member No, I I love what you're saying, George. George is actually dissecting out something here, and that is the difference between baptism into Jesus Christ and becoming a body, part of the the, the body of believers, and joining an institution, an organization, institutional church, whether a denominational church. They are not actually the same thing. But many denominational churches, and I'm not pointing finger at any specific denomination, but many denominational churches want people to believe that baptism into Jesus Christ equals joining the denomination. And so they hold them very, very closely together. But if you look closely, there is a subtle separation. If you've ever been to a baptism service in, in, in this denomination anyway, as soon as the baptism is over, within moments, the pastor will look to the church and say, do I have a motion to accept them into membership? Second, all in favor, aye. See, there's a second step happening. You're not actually a member until the church votes to bring you in. It's a separate whole process. But they bring them so closely together that they won't actually baptize somebody because they expect them to immediately become members of the church. I think decoupling those, bring them to Jesus Christ, baptize them to Jesus Christ. I mean, where do you get power for victory in your life? And what happens is we crush the joy. Remember when you first accepted Jesus? It's supposed to be a wonderfully joyful, what we might call a spiritual mountaintop experience. Lead me in the green pastures by the still waters. Okay, that's the, the first experience with Jesus Christ is supposed to be this way. 
And that's when you're baptized and you, and you have this wonderful um, nurturing in the Spirit from Jesus which prepares you. And because of that, from love, you want to give these things up. But what happens when we tell them, yes, you love Jesus, but you still can't be part of his church until you do all these things? Then we move from unconditional love. I love you as you are. And yeah, there's things in your life. We'll clean those up together. No worries, because that's not a barrier to me accepting you. Oh, you're a prostitute caught in adultery. So what? I still love you. Go and live a better life. I don't condemn you, but what we do instead is we lay out this list of things you've got to do, and now it's suddenly, my, it's conditional. I'm not actually loved for who I am. I've got to clean myself up. I've got to do all these things before I'm good enough to be loved. And now we create these legalists, these people who never smile in church, and the children run in church and smile. They should be spanked because this is holy ground. It's sacred. Be reverent. Fear-based versus love-based. Last paragraph says, the focus and the challenge is for us to rejoice in his deliverance. This is not always... This does not always make sense in the context of overwhelming challenges that we sometimes find ourselves in, challenges that are so much bigger than ourselves. Rejoicing in God's deliverance before deliverance comes as an act of faith and worship rather than the logical consequence of what is happening around us. On the other hand, because of what Christ has done for us, trusting in God's faithfulness is really the only logical thing we can do. I thought about this idea of deliverance, and I thought, well, Christ used a metaphor. Maybe we should pick that metaphor up. If one actually understands the reality of their circumstance around them, logically, does that undermine faith? It's almost subtly suggested that's the case. It's not a matter of logical understanding of the circumstances around you. It's a matter of faith, like they're somehow different. When a pregnant woman gets pregnant, uh, gets, goes into labor, when a pregnant woman goes into labor, what room do they put her in in the hospital? Sometimes called the delivery room. Get the delivery room. And what does she want to happen in there? She wants to be delivered. That's what she wants. And and this process is painful, though, and stressful. If she has understanding of her situation, what's transpiring, does her knowledge lessen her faith in the doctor? How about she's had prenatal visits the whole way, and she's had a good relationship with her doctor, and she understands and knows her doctor well? Does that lessen her faith in her doctor to know him well? No. How about a case of a woman who presents to the emergency room with terrible abdominal cramps and pain, and she's actually in labor, but she didn't know she was pregnant. And she doesn't even know the doctor who she has to, has to work with in the year. Does, does her faith get undermined by, by having less knowledge? This idea that logical sequence and knowledge undermines faith is corruption. In this war between Christ and Satan, how much truth is on Satan's side? Zero. How much truth is on God's side? All. So if you're on Satan and you're battling for people's minds and you're on Satan's side of it and you want people to, you want people on your side of it, you do not want them looking for truth. You do not want them looking for evidences because the more truth and evidence they find, truth and evidence always leads back to God. So you want to create holy sounding um, belief systems or ideas that say, you know, we have faith. We don't need evidence. We don't investigate. We don't ask questions. We believe. The more, the more faith you have, the more evidence you have, it undermines faith. The stronger your faith, that's believing when things don't make sense and have no evidence for them. That's real faith. 
And I've, I've read in, in, in Bible study guides things like we don't need to have faith to believe the sky is over our head because we can look up and see it. We need to have faith to believe in the God who lives beyond the sky because we can't see him. If that were true, then does that mean when Jesus appears and we meet him face to face, we'll say to Jesus, Jesus, I used to have faith in you, but now that I see you, I don't have faith in you anymore. That doesn't make sense at all. Won't you have more faith when you meet him face to face? We need to be careful that not everything Satan tells us is a lie. When, when Satan tempted Eve at the tree, he said, Your eyes, you shall be like God, knowing truth from error, or truth, knowing good from evil. And that, that was the truth. Mm-hmm. The lie was, you will not surely die. So Mixing lies and truth. Yeah, so so not, not everything we hear from, from Satan is a lie. Satan knows the truth about God's character is so overwhelmingly beautiful, consistent, reliable, trustworthy, altogether lovely, compelling, that if anyone after he gets a real view of who God is, they will be drawn to him in in such overwhelming desire and affection and adoration that this is why he works so hard to keep people from looking with the whole host of strategies. Sunday's lesson. It's about David. And the first, first it's about his victory over Goliath. And then his defeat with Bathsheba and Uriah. How could David have such singular victory over Goliath and such defeat with Bathsheba and Uriah? Have you ever thought about that? How could this be? Now, did David have a different character with Bathsheba. In other words, let me put it this way. Was the defect in David's character that was manifested at the time of Bathsheba and Uriah not in David's character at the time he dealt with Goliath? Or was that defect there just not yet evidenced? There's a different temptation. If we're talking about the defect in his character. Yes, it was a different temptation. So what was the difference... In the temptation, what's the difference in the situation between dealing with Goliath and dealing with Bathsheba? Would objective reality play a role here? In other words, when David sees Goliath, who was what, speculated to be around 11 feet tall? I think this is what a lot of the speculation is. He's around 11 feet tall, according to the measurements and so forth. So imagine you're seeing someone 11 feet tall who's proportional. What's he weigh? 800, 1,000 pounds? 2,000 pounds. 2,000, something like this. Um... And, and you're David, who's probably, what, 5'10"? Okay, not even, you know, maybe, maybe half as tall as this guy. When you look out there, do you think, hey, I can, I can take this guy? <laughs> I mean, or does objective reality say, wait a second, I can't take this guy. I need help beyond me. Me alone is not going to happen. And so the objective reality of the situation drove David to look outside of himself for strength. <laughs> And if you look at David's life, you see this pattern repeated over and over again when he dealt with the lion and the bear as the shepherd. Did he immediately say, oh, I can take a lion? Or do you think, oh, I can't take a lion. I need help outside myself. When he's on the run from Saul's armies for most of his early years, did he think, oh, I can take the armies? Or does he think, I need help outside myself? In other words, if you look at his life over and over and over again, David's in a position where his own human strength is inadequate to deal with the problem. Where's he at when he falls with Bathsheba? What's his circumstance now? He's the king. He's king. 
He's in power. He's secure. He's safe. He's adored by his nation. He finally can handle it on his own now. And he has multiple wives already. And he can handle it on his own, right? I mean, this situation, David can handle. And I'm going to suggest to you, this is when David's defect in character really was manifest. This is the challenge. This is a lesson for us. David was in a completely different place in, in life. He felt safe. He felt secure. I think this is the reason why David was given the instruction by God not to take a census. Because if David takes a census and he realizes he has 100,000 spearmen, he's got 50,000 chariots, he's got 20,000 bowmen, he's got, you know, all these, he's got this big massive army, where is he likely to feel his strength is? And where do we feel our strength? In our stock portfolios, in our retirement plans, in our IRAs, and the more we stock up, the more our strength is, right? In our security. Do you, so do you think the selfishness that appeared in David's behavior when he exploited Bathsheba and then had Uriah murdered suddenly appeared in his character at that time? or had been in his character his whole life, but circumstances had not yet really let the infection manifest. And this infection finally manifests, breaks out in the open, if you will. Have you ever had uh, chicken pox? Okay. If you've had chicken pox, you still have a viral infection in your body. That viral infection is hidden and unseen until your immune system is compromised to the point that it breaks out and you get shingles. And it, now it's manifest. It can be seen. I'm suggesting this, this defect in character was there all along, but circumstances kept it hidden. Yes, Wendell? Lack of opportunity is not character. Lack of opportunity. I like that. So we often, though, look at behavior in our community, in our churches. And we see somebody in church who has stumbled with some sin. We pick up the gossip stones and start throwing. But isn't it often the case as in the case of David or Peter denying Christ or Moses after striking the rock or Elijah after running away, that this is when the secret infection that had been there all along was finally brought out in the open and eliminated and dealt with. When they finally experienced the true surrender of their inner self and were converted. So it was after Moses struck the rock that he was taken to heaven. It was after Elijah ran away that he was taken to heaven. It was after David sinned with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah that he wrote Psalms 51. It was after Peter's denial that he was able and capable of feeding Christ's sheep. Do we allow, our, our, do we allow for in our own lives the stumbles and the falls that we've had, those painful moments to be useful in revealing an infection in our own hearts that might have been hidden by life circumstances until that moment, and then we humbly fall before the Lord like these men did to experience final healing and freeing from those, those, those fears and insecurities that have been in our heart all along. Do we allow for that? Or do we fall in the legal trap uh, oh, I blew it again. What's wrong with me? And we beat ourselves up and we go down the, the, the path of working harder not to be bad. Just a couple of thoughts. Uh, I'm still amazed in some ways we tell the story of 
David and Goliath to our kids, because this is a complicated story. And I think it's exciting to look at, um, go back and read 1 Samuel 16 and 17. And he was already, already anointed in chapter 16, so he knows God's going to do something special with him. But, you know, we're told there's a thousand solutions for every problem for someone. I have a lot of confidence in being on the white. And, you know, it's to me it's still sad that when Goliath had some anesthesia, they just didn't tie him up, take him home, give him Bible states, capture him. <laughs> you know, it's pretty gruesome what actually happens. And keep in mind, when the anointing happened, David wasn't invited to the anointing. Are you, are you all following the, what he's saying here? You know, after, after the stone hit Goliath in the head, he was anesthetized. He was knocked out. And rather than tying him up, he cut off his head and carried his head around. That's what David did. And he carried his head around for several days, it seems like. So you know, David was an angry guy. And, and, and I've heard from some folks that have respect, it sounds like David, you know, whether he was uh, a surprise pregnancy or it was an affair or something, he wasn't well treated by the family. Wasn't he invited when Samuel came to anoint someone to be the king? He, you know, he was out watching sheep. So there's, there's some issues going on there with some major family dysfunction, not to even have David there to see his brother anointed. So, uh, you know, I think there's, we need to look, and God has ways, and he wanted to use hornets, and I think David, it had been better if they'd actually at least taken Goliath back and as a captive, is my proposal. Interesting. How all this relates to the concept of guilt. You, a lot of times people don't do things because they don't want to have the feelings that they know will follow. Now, a real serious sociopath or psychopath or whatever will do things and put them in a room and just not go back there. So there's a difference in, in the kind of guilt, how we deal with guilt, guilt as a Christian as opposed to how people in the world you know, There's a whole lecture I do, on, it's on our website, on, on appropriate and inappropriate guilt. And there's two types of guilt. There's guilt that comes after actually doing something objectively wrong. And that is your conscience convicting you. And the purpose of that guilt is the same purpose of physical pain. What is the purpose of physical pain? Stop. Exactly. This is damaging you. It's injuring you. So stop doing it and don't get hurt. So if you're very, very sensitive with your, with your touch, for instance, as you approach a hot iron skillet, you might feel the heat before you actually get burned, and so you pull back and never get damaged. A sensitive conscience is like that. You get uncomfortably before you actually do the action. You never actually get burned. But the purpose of, of appropriate guilt is to give you a conviction of wrongdoing, to stop dysfunctional and destructive behavior, that searing of your character and warping your, 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 your inner person so to speak, damaging you on the inside. That's what the purpose of the guilt is. Um, when we do wrong, that conviction would be like pain, and, and we don't like the pain, we want the pain to go away. There are two ways to make that pain go away. A healthy way, repentance, which is an actual heart change, and restoration if possible. But there's also a way to make that pain go away, and that is denial and distortion. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. If she didn't put that, uh, uh, brought me in that fruit, I'd never take, I didn't do anything wrong with me. Denial, distortion. And when people deny and distort, they avoid the pain, but then what they do is they actually harden their heart. And this is what Paul's talking about in the New Testament, where they pile wrath on top of wrath for the day of wrath, because what happens is they pile lie on top of lie, and they live behind one bear, one lie after another lie after another lie after another lie, and their heart becomes hardened and hardened and hardened, and they become more and more warped and disconnected from how reality actually works. And so, inappropriate guilt, however, is when we feel guilt when, we, when there's been no wrong. And inappropriate guilt is always the result of somewhere believing a lie. 
And the resolution for that is not repentance and, restor- and restoration, because there's nothing to repent of, there's nothing to restore. The resolution for that is the truth. You have to apply the truth to yourself. And in the lecture, I go through four different types of common lies and examples of that on how people... So if you're a guilt-ridden person, you might want to check that lecture out on our website, and it'll, it'll walk through. Or in the book, Could It Be the Simple, there's an entire chapter on this type of, of guilt. But that's a very good point. The people who are hardened are the ones who deny and distort rather than repent and restore. Yeah. So Tuesday's lesson, Hezekiah was king of Judah when, the new, when a new superpower, Assyria, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and scattered the inhabitants across Mesopotamia. That which he could no longer do through them, they're talking about God, that which God could no longer do through them in the land of their fathers, he would seek to accomplish by scattering them among the heathen. His plan for the salvation of all who should choose to avail themselves of pardon through the Savior of the human race must must yet be fulfilled. And in the afflictions brought upon Israel, he was preparing the way for his glory to be revealed to the nations of earth. What do you hear is happening in this paragraph? Who is seeking to accomplish something in this paragraph? God is seeking to accomplish something. Who is God seeking to save in this paragraph? Everyone. Nicely said, everyone, the entire human race. What is the reason Israel is overtaken by foreign forces? Israel is not doing their mission. (laughs) Because they are failing to do their mission. Was it God's desire for it to be this way? No. They're misrepresenting God so that God says they're worse than the other nations around. So when God did permit this to happen, was it because God was punishing, i.e. exacting retribution upon them for their wickedness? Do you understand this is commonly taught? They disobeyed and God punished. But we just see here there's actually another purpose going on here. That, that God wants to save the human race. They are in possession of vital critical information that's necessary for all human beings in order for salvation to come. They are hoarding that information. It must be dispersed. So this was not for punishment purpose. This was for salvation purpose that this was permitted. Yes. You know, it's odd that we put, you know, discipline and such negative connotations and punishment. You know, God's just teaching them. And you know, okay, well, you just, you just merged two things. I have to clarify. Right. You've merged discipline and punishment. And we often do that. But discipline comes from the root word disciple. It means to teach. And that is something God, God disciplines those he loves. And you're exactly right. So it's a Punishment comes from the root word punitive. means to exact vengeance upon. And many people merge those two and then they get confused ideas. I don't think God is actually in the, ever in the business of exacting vengeance upon. But he is in the business of disciplining. Almost for every word, there's, there's Satan's counterfeit. So in like punishment is a distortion and the discipline or t- and that doesn't mean there's not a punishment for sin there is absolutely a punishment for sin just like there's a punishment for poking a pencil in your eye you, you poke your pencil in your eye there's going to be a punishment for that yes sin punishes itself. there it is sin punishes itself the wages of sin is sin when full grown brings forth yes sin pays its wage that's right yes so because they were hoarding this information that needed to be dispersed, they're acting out of fear and selfishness. So God said, okay. And that's then the enemies. See, without this larger view, without the great controversy on going on, the Bible becomes very mysterious to read. It's only in the setting of the great controversy that these stories actually make sense and God's behavior and actions make sense. The biggest misunderstanding, though, that we have, I think, still throughout history is the misunderstanding of our God's law. 
It started in heaven that way. It's, it's on earth that way. It's Old Testament that way. God's law functions like human law, a system of rules that requires the one who gave the rules to punish lawbreakers, and if he doesn't punish lawbreakers, there's no, then there's no justice. Yes? It's very interesting historically that God's plan worked really well because if you look at the 6th century B.C., this is the end where people began to, throughout the world, discredit and challenge uh, polytheism. In, in China, in India, in Greece in Egypt. So this is the time when, when this idea of a monotheistic God starts spreading around the world, and it's the time when, they're, when they are, their nation's broken up. Yes. So there's historical correlation that says, okay, this knowledge of a monotheistic God is actually starting to spread around the world. Cool. I did not know that. Thank you. But let's consider the total breakdown and all that is actually reasonable. If it were the case that God was actually the God of an imposed law system, they broke the rules and therefore God has to punish them for their, their paganism and their rebelliousness and their idolatry, which is often preached. Let, let's, let's just go through some of the illogical and irrational conclusions that one must draw if you believe that's true. So, how about this? God uses pagans who are every bit as wicked as Israel to punish Israel for doing what the pagans themselves are doing. Does that make a lot of sense to anybody? Okay, we got a bunch of people over here molesting kids, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to get some child molesters to come over and punish them. How does that work? That doesn't work at all. God uses his power to control people. How about this one, then? If we actually believe that God is the one in charge of inflicting this punishment, then, then he needs to punish Israel, so he inserts himself into the minds of these pagan leaders and inspires them to kill, to maim, to mutilate, to torture, to enslave, to rape, and destroy, because they have to be punished, and God's got to make sure they get every ounce of vengeance upon those people. Wow. Is that the God that you see in Jesus? But this is what, this is what we would have to conclude if we believe God is punishing them for this. God would be an abuser of power. One who does coerce and threaten. And there is no real freedom in a universe like that. Thus love does not exist in his universe. This is Satan's goal. He wants us to view God this way because you might believe in God, but you really can't trust a God like this. And thus you then create that whole long list of theologies that are designed to protect us from him. Jesus, our intercessor, to plead his blood to the Father. The robe of righteousness with covers from the Father. The, the investigative judgment in which the blood of Jesus is applied to our record books, and when the Father looks at our record, there's no record of sins. We can't punish us. On and on and on and on, the list of theologies that twist and as function, function purpose, their, their primary function, to protect you from God, not reconcile you to God. But there's a logical way, and the only logical way, fortunately, consistent with Scripture, is design law. God is acting as our protector. He is intercessing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as the scripture says in Romans 8, all three members of the Godhead are described in Romans 8 as interceding for us against the forces of evil in this world. In the very beginning, in Genesis 3, God began to seeds in Genesis 3 with, he says to Satan, the, the, the uh, seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. He puts a desire for good in the hearts of us. The Holy Spirit's working in your heart to give you a desire for something better. So right from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, the Holy Spirit began interceding in the hearts and minds of human beings to make us dissatisfied with selfishness, to, wreck us, to, to draw us with love and truth. He also has been interceding throughout all human history with the principalities and powers of darkness, the angel armies in the time of Elijah, holding back the four winds of strife and so forth and so on, and he interceded 
with the course of what sin does to the human species in that Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. If Jesus doesn't become human, then our trajectory is an eternal death. But Jesus interceded with that trajectory and altered and opened the door for another outcome. One, one second, one, don't let me, and then we'll, I'll get to you. Thus, the punishment Israel received, if you want to under, if you understand this, is the same punishment that we receive when we disobey mother who says, don't touch the hot stove, and we touch it anyway. Or when we run our toothbrush underwater to show mom we brushed our teeth, but we really didn't wash, brush them. There's a punishment there, isn't there? Or we cheat on our exams. What's the punishment when you cheat on your exams? Or you cheat on your spouse. What's the punishment when you cheat on your spouse? There's a punishment. What's the punishment? If Is the punishment for cheating getting caught? Getting caught and, ex- and, and experiencing some external consequence like an F or expelled from school or separation or divorce? These are not the punishments. The punishment is a warped character, a seared conscience, and a hardened heart. That's the punishment. These other th- consequences, see, the punishment for touching the hot stove is not the pain. The pain is the warning to take your hand off the hot stove. The punishment is the, is the melting and mutilated flesh. And if you keep touching it long enough, it sears the nerve endings, you don't feel it. And if you have leprosy, this is why leprosy is a metaphor for sin. Because leprosy does not destroy tissue. Leprosy destroys pain fibers. Thus, the person with leprosy touches the hot stove, they get no warning. They're completely unaware. And thus, they keep their hand on the hot stove until they smell the burning flesh and how much more damage. This is why they lose bits and pieces of their fingers and parts of their body. This is what happens to sin. It's solely, you lose bits of your soul. That's what you lose. That's the punishment for sin. It destroys the sinner. Last week I was in uh, Carmichael, California, presented five talks there. And during the question and answer time, somebody wrote this question. In light of the character of God I pre- that I, I presented, and uh, the design laws versus the imposed law constructs that I'd outlined, what do we do when ISIS shows up in our community bent on killing us? San Bernardino. What do we do? San Bernardino. What do we do? That was the question. Does anybody want to throw a thought out? I'll share with you my answer. Well, we take the attitude of David. Here we have these uncircumcised Philistines, and we manage them like David managed Goliath. We give them a missile. We give them the missile. Okay. That, that is an option that's very common in Christianity, and you will find that there's a, there's a religious system forming up, described in Revelation, to do that very thing. So I answered by saying, it's Satan's government that works by force, coercion, and fear. Satan wants to get you afraid because the more fearful he can get you, the more likely you are to act self-centeredly or survival the fittest drive instinct stuff. That's all out of harmony with God's design. You will kill in order to protect others. In Bible times, we have a story of Jehoshaphat who faced a huge army coming to destroy his nation. And what did Jehoshaphat do? He called all the singers together and they began to praise the beauty of holiness. And then what happened? Did Israel have to fight that battle? No. No. The enemy got themselves all confused and they started into killing each other. 
And the wealth that they left behind, it took them three whole days to haul it out of there. We are taught that in the future, many of us may very well face situations in our lives where we are threatened, our lives are threatened because of our faith. What are we to do? Revelation 12, 11 describes the people ready for translation in these words. These are they that do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not survival of the fittest driven. They're not watching out to protect themselves. So do you trust, do we trust God with our life so much that we could say to God, God, if I need to die at the hands of an ISIS terrorist in order for that soldier to be brought to conviction and give their heart to you and be saved eternally, my life's in your hands. Now, is there an example from Bible like this? How about Stephen? Who was holding the coats when Stephen was being stoned? And what event was used in Saul's life to bring him to conviction? It was the stoning of Stephen. He was, he was troubled by that, and it aided his conscience. Ellen White describes that. And that's what the Holy Spirit used, the, the, the graciousness of Stephen. His face glowed like that of an angel, and he was forgiving those. Don't count this, to, don't hold this to their account. And, and, and Saul of Tarsus was just troubled by this, and he was brought to conversion. Do you think in the resurrection, when Stephen wakes up, he will be upset with God? Or when he understands how this event converted Paul, who wrote the New Testament, who how many millions have been converted because of it, he go, thank you, Lord, for letting me be useful. You look at his prayer at his death, at the stoning. Do not hold this against their account. Yes. Well, and what you're saying there, it's almost like then no war. We should never present go to war with anybody. So, yeah. Well said, Tina. Well said. Why did God tell the Israelites to destroy the people when they came into the country in order for him to get them the land? He didn't. He said, I'm going to send the hornet before you and the pestilence before you, and little by little they will evacuate the land and you'll take it over without war. But the Israelites said, oh, no, we've just come out of 400 years of slavery. We've been oppressed and abused. And if you understand human psyche and psychology, and, and, and they want to feel powerful, they want to feel strong, they, they, want to feel, they don't want to feel helpless slaves anymore. So we're going to go and we're going to attack these people. So the Lord says, okay, if you're going to do it, then do it in one generation. Do it quickly. Do it completely. And only this generation will be PTSD traumatized victims. And only the smallest number of the, of the Philistines and the, and the, and the, um, Canaanites and so forth will, and the Jebusites and the rest will be victimized by your uh, violence against them. Uh, the actual raw numbers will be much smaller and the generations will be much smaller because you will wipe them out in one generation and we'll have peace in this land for 4,000 years. Instead, they couldn't even do that right, and we've had 4,000 years of constant flight fighting, and every generation has suffered under the trauma issues of war in that, in that area. So it wasn't God's design on either way. They, didn't do, they did exactly not what God wanted them to do. <laughs> okay? So, yes? This speaks to one of the uh, basic drives that we have as human beings, though, in that we want to avoid futility, the idea that our lives are futile. And, and when you look at the way so many of these people live in other parts of the world where, you know, war is a way of life. And I mean, I'm talking about in, in Islam, the Sunnis and the Shias would just as soon kill each other as any other infidel that there is. So when you're looking at people that live such a futile, ideal 
ideology. That's because they don't know God. They don't know Jesus. They don't know his system. They don't know what love looks like. And it's all a survival of the fittest system. They have religion, but they have no love. And, and this, is, this is the issue at the end of time. It's going to come down to two methods. The survival of the fittest method, or greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend method. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. I can tell you, I am not saying that I am ready to do that at this point in my life, but I am saying I want to be ready. I want to be that. I, and I pray, Lord, give me a heart to love like that. But I'm going to jump into, into Wednesday's lesson, which is the death decree. We want to pick up with the death decree in Wednesday's lesson. What do you understand is happening in the book of Esther? What do you understand is happening in the book of Esther? It says, little did the king realize the far-reaching results that would have accompanied the complete carrying out of the decree. Satan himself, the hidden instigator of scheme, was trying to rid the earth of those who preserve the knowledge of the true God. And from these same people, too, would come the Savior of the world. And so we again find the, the great controversy issue being carried out. Yes, Wendell. Here, as well as in Bundy's lesson, as well as a couple other places, the lesson has had an emphasis on the covenant that God made with a people. And they use this almost as an arbitrary, the covenant can't be broken, almost in the same way that we have the concept of law cannot be broken without God doing something. Okay, yeah, no, I hear you. The covenant promises there, all again in the lesson. Yeah. And so God is bound to do this because he said it's going to happen. And I think that's how we, we sometimes look at God as, and his promises as commodities that we can claim and put in the slot machine of his you know, heavenly... Um, the pardon? Vending. Vending machine. Yeah, go ahead. What I saw here in this lesson for Wednesday is the fact that um, God is trying to keep the channel open for the Messiah to come. And I find this down here in the paragraph, just below the lines, the last few, it says, Satan himself, the hidden instigator of the scheme, is trying to rid the earth of these who preserve the knowledge of the true God, and from these people too would come the Savior of the world. Well said. And this is the key that I, that I wanted to emphasize. To understand these things, you have to come back to see this great controversy being played out. And Satan is working in Old Testament times to stop this Messiah from coming. And so we see immediately Cain kills Abel, the, the righteous one, the potential avenue for Messiah, uh, is, is killed right out of the gate. And then we see the world is corrupted till there's only one righteous man left on the earth, and, and the flood comes to keep open the avenue for Messiah. And then the, the, the God communicates that it's not the whole world through the, through the Messiah is going to come. It's just one family, this family of Abraham. And so now Satan targets his energies on this family of Abraham, and he gets nations, wicked nations, to kidnap Lot in order to lure Abraham into a war, I think, because Satan would, would have loved to have had Abraham killed in that war and shut down that whole avenue. But he gets Abraham to replace Sarah with Hagar, seeking to create his own line of people, uh, rather than, the, the, uh, again, to obstruct the plan. He gets Jacob's children to infight against each other and sell a member off into slavery. He brings a famine to try to destroy the, the children of Abraham, but God foresaw this and put Joseph in position to save the family. He gets wicked nations to try to destroy them. He gets wicked individuals, as in the book of Esther, to try to destroy them. Then he infects them with with distorted ideas about God, and they become Baal worshippers, and they have these distorted uh, imperial law constructs in their worship system. He leads the priests to misrepresent God historically. And then, in Thursday's lesson, after Nehemiah rebuilds the wall, Satan leads the people into a legalism and bigotry and bias and prejudice. They get rid of their heathen wives. They put up these legal, rigid walls. They won't associate with the people around them anymore. And they build a very legal box 
of religious rules that they hide behind. And then the fourth paragraph. What do we do with someone like Hitler, for example? Do we just let him run wild and kill all the Jews and everybody else they don't like? Or, I mean, the thing that stopped Hitler seemed to be war. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that off because there's a couple of big points I want to get to in the lesson. We only have about six minutes. It's a great question. And uh, I'll just say this much. Psych patients that are psychotic, we use restraining power on, not because we hate them and want to hurt them, but because we want to strain them from hurting other people and hurting themselves. And we want to restore them to sanity. So there's a godly use of restraining power, which is an act of love, which is not the act of vengeance to kill people you hate. So, um, But if, if God truly works with all people, he, didn't, he wasn't constricted to the children of Israel. If they would have been unrepentant like the northern tribes did he could have if he wasn't restricted except for the fact of the avenue for the messiah to come he wasn't restricted in revealing truth and revealing knowledge of his of his character on the earth we actually find um in in scripture that the wise men from the east came and they were reading other other inspired sources that were not of our 66 canon so there were other people got work but not through the avenue through messiah and all that wisdom would do us no good if we don't have jesus coming to earth and do what he needs to do for us but he could have come through another, uh, another lineage. He, he could have, other than he said he was going to come through Abraham. So he'd already, you know, he'd already tipped his hand, this is the avenue through which I'm coming. Um, so the lessons we learned from ancient Israel apply to us today. This is what I want to get to. Israel, we're slaves in Egypt. We are slaves to sin in the world. Moses the deliverer came to free them. Jesus came to free us. They leave Egypt for the promised land. Christian in the Christianity in the first century left the ways of the world for God's methods and principles and lived communally. Israel accepts false views about God and rebels from God's plan and ends up slaves again. The church accepted false views about God and God's law and ends up slaves in the dark ages, captive again to Satan's lies about God. They had a spokesperson from God, Nehemiah, that led them to repair the walls, to repair the breach, and God has called a people at this time in history to do the same, to repair the breach. Now I want to read some of that prophets and kings. What is this breach that we are to prepare? Adventists have taught it a certain way, and it's been slightly off. It's been just off enough that we haven't actually repaired the breach. Here's out of Prophets and Kings, 677. The spiritual restoration of which the work carried forward in Nehemiah's day was a symbol. Notice the work carried forward is a symbol, just like I'm saying. It's applying as a symbol to a bigger reality. Is outlined in the words of Isaiah. They shall build up the old waste places and the former destitute places. The prophet here describes a people who, in a time of general departure from truth and righteousness, are seeking to restore the principles that are the foundation of the kingdom of God. Pause. Before we even go on, what do you think this might be? What are the principles that are the foundation of God that need to be restored? That's what, yeah, it certainly is God's love, but I'm going to be more concrete about it. How do you understand God's law? This is the, this is the whole thing. So next, next sentence. They are repairers of the breach that has been made in God's law. Very next words. And the wall that has been placed around his chosen ones for their protection and obedience to those who, uh, whose precepts of justice, truth, and purity, and so forth. How has God's law been broken down? By replacing it with the idea that God's laws are not designed protocols upon which reality functions. Oh no. God's law functions no different than what a human being makes. A system of rules 
that he enforces coercively. This is how it happened. But the Adventist church has bought into this idea. What, what really was the change was simply the, the breach in the day of worship. And when the Sabbath was replaced, therefore the Sabbath is the breach. And if we just worship on the right day, we repaired the breach. Notice the words from uh, Ellen White here regarding this idea. Notice, it's very, it's very interestingly worded. I'm skipping one paragraph because we're running out of time. Not that, otherwise, I was going to read it and have some notes about it. It says, in the, time at the, uh, in the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed by man is to be repaired. Notice how it's phrased. It doesn't say the breach made in the law by changing the Sabbath or the breach made in the law was the change in the Sabbath. It doesn't say that. The breach made in the law at the time that the Sabbath was changed. Remember, why doesn't the church committee, I was in California last week, I told you, you guys, sometimes you get bad smoke days, fog days, burning you know, forest days here where you can't hardly breathe. Why don't you pass a law that when the smog level goes to a certain level, that on those days you don't have to breathe in California? <laughs> why don't you pass it? Why don't you, why don't you vote in committee to do that? Wouldn't it be more convenient on really bad fog? And here in Chattanooga, really bad pollen days. We don't have to breathe on bad pollen days. Why don't we pass laws like that? Because we can't do it. It's beyond our ability. Thus, if what would it mean then if a human council gets together and votes to change God's law? Other than they don't see God's law like that. They see it simply as a system of rules. And that's what she's saying here. When the Sabbath was changed, it wasn't about simply the Sabbath. It was the other change in the law that we view God's law no longer as the designer protocols upon which reality is built on all spheres, not just physical, but also moral and relational and how your mind works. There are laws on how your mind works, how it's designed to function. Deviate from those, it's always predictable, damaging consequences. God's remnant people standing before the world as reformers are to show that the law of God is the foundation of all enduring reform and that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is a memorial of creation, a constant reminder of the power of God. In clear, distinct lines, they are to present uh, to the necessity of obedience to all the precepts of the Decalogue. Constrained by the love of Christ, they are to cooperate with him in building up the waste places. What is the memorial? What's a memorial? Is a memorial the reality? If you see a memorial, are you seeing the reality? No, the Sabbath is a memorial. How many Adventists forget that? They think it's the reality. It is a memorial of the larger reality. It is a memorial of the designer, the creator, the the way he constructed his universe to function. It is not the reality. You can keep Sabbath and want Jesus off the cross by sunset and kill the person who created the Sabbath. That's the point I'm making. You can actually worship on the Sabbath under the false law of an imperialistic dictator who makes up rules, and we just have the right rules. You've got the wrong rules, we've got the right rules, therefore our God's going to kill you for not obeying the right rules. That's the same pagan God that is not Sabbath worship. Sabbath is a memorial of designer where worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And I'm going to close with prayer, and then we've got an announcement. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator God who has built your universe to run on the law of love, an expression of your own character. Lord, our minds have been so deeply infected with the system of the world. We ask that your spirit will be poured out and enlighten us, lead us back to be people who are repairers of the breach, who, who lead people back to your true nature, your character, 
and experience the healing and re- renewal that you would have for us, that we can see you soon. Lord, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Dr. Jennings, he has been named a champion of health by True Health Broadcasting Network in association with the Health Institute for Preventive Care, Access, Research, and Education, and True Health TV. And he's going to be presented with the Legacy Champion of Health Award at a gala, which will be held on Saturday, April the 9th, from 6 to 10 p.m. at the Georgia World Congress Center down in Atlanta. This award is being presented to Dr. Jennings, as it states in the award letter, quote, because of your unselfish commitment to community health exemplified by your leadership in the community and as an author of The God-Shaped Brain and Could It Be This Simple, A Biblical Model for Healing the Mind. There will be a health equity town hall meeting today at 3 p.m. in the Georgia World Congress Center, which is where Dr. Jennings is going, is why he has to leave, Um, This town hall meeting is free to the public and will be televised on True Health Broadcasting Network and its affiliates, which will reach millions of households. So we want to say congratulations to Dr. Jennings. 